Welcome to episode 98 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Mona Johnson. Mona and I connected when I learned about her book about being a Muslim American and serving in the U.S. Army. She was an immigrant from Egypt to America and talked about the challenges that she and her family faced. She was in an abusive relationship with her ex-husband, and when she was finally able to get out of that relationship, she decided to join the army as a nurse as a way to start her life over again. She faced many challenges in the military being a single mother and being a Muslim American. I really enjoyed reading her book, Not Created Equal, and found it really insightful to someone who didn't know a lot about the Muslim culture and how Muslims have been treated. This is another great episode, so let's get started. You're listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman. I'm an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military, and a collaborative author of Brave Women, Strong Faith. I am also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Hi Mona, I'm excited to have you here for the podcast and talk about your story and your book. Hi Amanda, thank you for inviting me. Let's first start with why did you decide to join the military? Why did I decide to join the military? Well, in my book, I explain how I was an immigrant. I came to the United States with my family, my parents and my brothers in uh, 1960. I know that sounds like an awful long time ago, and it was, but I came from Egypt and uh, I grew up as a Muslim American. And at that time, people in this country didn't even know what Muslims were or who they were. So it was a very early time for us, for our heritage to be here. But over the years, I've assimilated. Our family changed our name to Johnson so we can be more Americanized. My father became uh, an instructor for Arabic and Islamic studies at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. And there he learned what military life was like because he taught to officers and soldiers of the Army, Air Force, all the military, the language and the culture. Meanwhile, I went to college and got my degree in nursing and I got married. Initially in college, I wanted to be an Air Force nurse. I wanted to be a pilot. I have an uncle who was a pilot and his plane unfortunately crashed when we came to the United States. They all perished. But in his memory, I wanted to be a pilot like him. But that wasn't open to me back in the 70s when I was in college. So I became a nurse because friends of mine were going into nursing. I had no idea what nursing was. And then a couple of friends were going to be Air Force nurses. So I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. Then I can be a pilot too. (laughs) Well, it didn't happen that way. My parents uh, were are very traditional in our religious beliefs. And my mother had somehow arranged for me to meet someone who was Muslim for me to marry. And with their blessings, I got married. 
And to make a long story short, it was a very abusive marriage. And my husband was Muslim and he was from Egypt also, but he was close-minded. He wasn't as open-minded as my parents in many ways, but it was abusive. And so I seeked a divorce and I obtained one after seven years. And since my father worked for the Defense Language Institute, he recommended, well, why don't you go ahead and start and go to the Air Force and see what it's like? You'd go in as an officer, as a commissioned officer, because I already had my degree. So I tried. The Air Force, unfortunately, wasn't responding as quickly as I wanted to go in. So the Army recruited me. And um, it was right after my divorce, I decided I needed a new start. And I was still young enough. I was 29. But I had two children. I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old when I went in. And I thought, well, this will be an adventure and I'm going to make a shot of it. And that's how I, I went in with my parents' blessings. And I, I read your book, so I, I actually know everything that you said. And <laughs> the book goes into a lot more detail. And one of the things that the book talks a lot about was the discrimination that you felt growing up yes. throughout when you moved. Can you yes. talk a little bit about how that affected you growing up and then like some of the choices you made when you were on active duty? How that affected me growing up, well, as I mentioned, we changed our name to Johnson. It was not a pretty picture back in the 60s and 70s. Like I said, people just did not know what Muslims were or who they were, yet they had plenty of epitaphs for us. (laughs) In a manner of trying to blend in and be more Americanized, we changed our name went to a different neighborhood, different schools to try and assimilate. However, we, you know, my parents had a very strong accent and it didn't take long for them to know where we were from. And it still continued, but we had to learn to roll with the punches, you know, so to speak. Also remembered all those years when I went into the army, you know, how you, you get you in process and then they you, you do all the paperwork and, and the basic training, all you know, all of that stuff. No one knew, of course, about my religion in the Army. And I'm, I kept it that way. So when we processed our paperwork and our dog tags, I uh, indicated no religious preference. I did not want to say Muslim. And that was twofold. One is I did not want any more discrimination. I had enough of it within the Army. And also, if by any chance we ever came in contact with a Muslim entity or Islamic entity one way or another, I did not want to be identified as a Muslim in the U.S. Armed Forces because I would be used as an example in not such a good way. And having two children, I had to be very cognizant of that. So I uh, just wrote no religious preference and left it at that. And I just never really, I never told anybody except my second husband who I met nine years later in the army. (laughs) And I thought when I was reading that, I never really thought that much when I did my dog tag. I actually put Protestant, but I didn't ever like think about that and how even when the captain, I think it was the captain who asked you, he was like Jewish, Christian, Protestant. And you were like, "Uh, but I don't fit into any of those. And I feel like he had never been in that situation. He was like, no, you just pick one. And then he gave you the other option. Yeah. Well, actually, I had to think about it. I had to go go home and call my dad and say, you know, that just jumped up at me. It, it caught me by surprise. It was a sergeant that processed us. And he said, is it uh, Jewish, Catholic, or Protestant? Which is it? Which is a captain? <laughs> I was a captain. I re- received a direct commission. So I had to think about that. 
my father suggested just, you know, tell him you're spiritual, tell him you don't belong, yada, yada. So he told me, well, then the sergeant, when I went back to him, told me, well, how about NRP? And I said, what's NRP? And he said, no religious preference. I said, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> and so I left it at that and uh, just never disclosed it in the army. Yeah, I found that really interesting because it was something that I never really had thought about. But of course, it's something that was really important to you, but also you needed to protect yourself and your and your children. So let's talk a little bit about your kids because your kids were, how old were they when you joined the army? They were two and four toddlers. Yeah. And when you went on active duty, first you had to go to your like 12 week officer training. Did your parents watch them? Yes, I, I took them to my parents. It was a, a the basic training was six weeks. And so I took them to my parents and they kept them for me. And after I completed basic training, I went to my first assignment, which was Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, Washington, D.C. As soon as I got settled, I brought them to join me. And let's talk about because when you were working at the hospital, you were working like swing shift and night shift and day shift and you were a single mom. And I know that you had issues with childcare every once in a while. So talk about what you did when you worked night shift and your childcare fell through and how difficult that was. Of course, uh, in the Army, it's very important to have a family care plan. And you do that at, in basic training and then annually you, you update it. And I did have a family care plan and I had child care plans also uh, for, for uh, child care providers. But the, the policy at Walter Reed was um, a rotating shifts and we had to choose two out of the three shifts every six weeks and weekends, uh, every other weekend and holidays. I didn't see my career come to fruition with a schedule like that. And I chose night shift and day shift. And then before I knew it, we had shortages, then we had to fill in on the third shift. So even though I had the best plans for my childcare, they just wouldn't show up or wouldn't answer my calls. <laughs> I mean, it was very unreliable. Nobody wanted to work those shifts. Um, nobody wanted to babysit on weekends. So I had a tough time. I had to take my girls into work with me several times and just put them in the nurse's station lounge and make a little bed for them and where they would sleep or play or whatever. Anyway, this lasted a few months. Uh, I was written up for that. So what was I supposed to do? <laughs> After about, I guess, nine, 10 months, before a year was up, I, I learned about the Army's new program called uh, Nurse Practitioner. Of course, now we all know what nurse practitioners are. But back in the early 80s, uh, that was a new phenomenon. And as the military is very, um, especially the Army, is very on the forefront of new advances in, in uh, practices, there were, it, it was new in the country too. And so I was one of the first nurse practitioners in this country. And it interested me primarily because I was told that upon graduation, completion of this program, that I would be guaranteed clinic hours, Monday through Friday, 7.30 to 4.30. And no weekends, no 
holidays. And I said, oh, yes, I'll sign up. <laughs> where, do I, where do I sign up for this? So I did. I joined uh, that class. Uh, I was accepted for that class, I should say. I applied. And it was a six-month program, very con- very condensed. And again, I took the, my girls to my parents for that. And that yeah, was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I took the course. And yes, I became a nurse practitioner. And it was purely out of necessity. You know, the the saying, uh, invention is the necessity, is the mother, uh, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention or something like that. And But I learned to love it. And uh, I, later, a few years later, I went to graduate school and, and obtained my master's degree in uh, women's health care and uh, continued to be a, a, a nurse practitioner. Yeah. And you ended up going to Alabama, right? After you became a nurse practitioner? Yes. Fort McClellan, Alabama. That was my most favorite assignment. <laughs> yeah. But before you got there, you were a little worried because it was Alabama is the South. and But you ended up finding a great community and you really loved being there. Yes. yes. Now, granted, they didn't know my heritage. I mean, you know, but and they didn't need to. And I wanted to protect my daughters again. But uh, it was one wonderful Southern hospitality. And I just fit in, my girls just fit in. And uh, it was just, my religion was never discussed or brought up or questioned or anything. Uh, And it was funny because, not funny, but I guess it's strange um, uh, because it was the South and I had preconceived notions about it. But it, it was it was fine for us, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the staff, the work, the patients, the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, and then the next assignment, you came up to D.C., and that was to get closer to your parents. Yeah, I wanted to. My brothers were all in uh, California at the time. Um, that's where I grew up, by the way. Um, and my parents were in Virginia. My father had transferred to Fort Lee, Virginia, to uh, work there as a civilian with the Army. I transferred, I wanted Fort uh, Belvoir, which would have been closer, but I, the closest I could get was Fort Meade, Maryland. And so I went there um, with the intention of being a support person for my parents because I had to, to balance now my military life and my children and then the care of my father with, along, you know, with my mother. So, yeah, it was quite a balancing act. Um, and from there, I went to graduate school. Yeah. And, and then next, didn't you get to go overseas to Germany? Am I remembering that? After, right? after graduate school, yes, I went to Germany. And it was another wonderful, wonderful experience. Actually met my second husband there. And it was quite um, serendipitous, I should say. Uh, we in process together. He had just graduated from his anesthesia program. And I just graduated from a nurse practitioner master's program. And we met in in processing in our commander's office when he had us all in the office. Um, And we ended up being neighbors, again, serendipitously. (laughs) It was the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) What an opposite um, between my two husbands is like, one was like the devil, the other was like the angel. Yeah, and you like took to your girls and you guys got to spend time traveling, sometimes just you and him and then sometimes all as a family. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading that part of the book and like all over all over Europe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a wonderful tour. Now granted it was um before the Berlin Wall came down or right. During the Berlin Wall, I should say, I joined uh, the army in eighty one, at the end of eighty one, and um, we 
our tour in Germany was from 89 to 92 and January of 89. And then in November of 89, of course, the, the wall came down. We were actually there. My daughter, I have pictures of my daughters with axe picks at the wall. <laughs> but it was a completely different experience um, back then than it is now, of course. You know, the world, of course, has changed in, in 30 years drastically. When we went to the Eastern Bloc countries, that was, it was very sad. It was like you're stepping back uh, in the 1950s. <laughs> 1950s, 1960s. They were they were just like I guess communist Cuba. They were it, it was it was very very sad. The people, yeah, everybody had a job, but it was everybody was poor too, <laughs> you know. And uh, it was an eye opener the difference between the East and the West, the Eastern Bloc countries and the West. Yeah, I forgot about that because you went to East Berlin and you talked about that in detail in the book. And it was really interesting. And Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And then we also went to a lot of Western countries. Of course, we went to Belgium and to Holland and to Paris and Switzerland, where I had an aunt, (laughs) my mother's sister. It, it was quite. It was an opportunity for us to travel. We even took a MAC flight to Turkey uh, in a C nine um, military airlift command flight, and <laughs> that was an adventure in itself, you know. Um, and because it was a different era, the girls even got to steer, so to speak, quote unquote, the plane, <laughs> which is unheard of now, you know. Um, but it was. It was an adventure for them as well and a learning experience. And I actually put my daughters in German schools. I opted for that intentionally because when I came to America, I didn't know English. Um, English is my fourth language. And I knew at those ages, at the time they were about nine and 11, I believe. And I knew they would pick up German in a, in a flash. And they did. They spoke it so well that they didn't want me to speak German with them. Any, I spoke German at home, and I knew German, and I tutored them initially. But after a few months, they spoke it so well, they didn't want me to speak German to them in front of their friends because it wasn't good. <laughs> so it was cute. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> I I think it was interesting that they got such a different, unique experience, but it was very similar in a way, to yours because you got too immersed in English by going to school. So it's cool that they got to learn German that way and just have such a great experience and see so much of the world at such a young age. So after Germany, you guys moved back to Virginia, right? After Germany, uh, my my current new husband and I, we got married in Denmark. We went to Denmark. That's another country we went to in Sweden. But uh, yes, we were married in 1990. And our next assignment was Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And we were both stationed there for a few years. My husband was deployed to Somalia. And after that, you know, then he retired before I did. Well, we each spent a, a tour in Korea, too. I have to think of things chronologically. Yes. And so in order for us to stay at Fort Belvoir for the length of time that we were able to and keep the girls in school, because they were now middle school and high school, we chose to spend um, unaccompanied tours in Korea. So each of us spent a year unaccompanied at separate times. He went from 95 to 96, and I went 99 to 2000. They were able to complete middle school, high school, and be a little more stable because being in 
an army child or air force child, military child is not easy either you know go going from school to school and as as you get older it gets harder to adapt so that was what we did to survive having the family together yeah and being dual military it's not always easy to get stationed together and and you said you guys did a year in korea and then you you followed him and did another year in korea so that was like two essentially two years of being separated but being able to be there for your daughters. And I realized I skipped over the Gulf War. And I know that you didn't deploy, but I know that when you were in Germany, you guys ramped up. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what happened with the Gulf War and then how that affected you personally? Yeah, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, we were in Germany. Uh, we had to gear up our hospital. Uh, our hospital was um, 500 beds capacity, and we had to double the capacity quickly. And so we were not deployed. We were designated as a personnel that would cover that hospital. So when that happened, it was like my worst nightmare come true. I thought, oh my God, you know, my heritage, I know I'm not Iraqi, I'm Egyptian, but Muslims kind of feel a brotherhood or sisterhood, just like Christians do and Jewish people. And, and you know, every group, you know, it's, it's the tribe feeling. And I felt, oh my God, you know, here, I'm part of this. And it was a true split of my identity. How can I support this and yet still be loyal to my military? And of course, this was my new home, America. And of course, I would be loyal to my country. But it was a very difficult thing for me to even be comfortable with that. And I couldn't share that with anybody except for my husband at the time, you know, and he didn't even understand. My husband, my second husband is Catholic. Um, We get along beautifully. It's been 30 years now. (laughs) But he... he couldn't understand. And you really can't unless you're in that situation. My heritage is always my heritage, even though my name is Johnson. And even though I speak like everyone else in this country, you know, it's and I was a minority then. And it wasn't um, it wasn't viewed as a positive thing. And it still isn't in this country. But at least they have more more people here in order to bond with, you know, and uh, assimilate with the Muslims and the the Arabs and what have you, whatever group you are in, there's more. (laughs) Yeah, I think you wrote it really well in the book just to, you didn't really put it into words, but I could feel the emotional tension. And so it's very similar to the way that you expressed it now where it's like, because I can't understand it because I I'm Amer- I grew up in America, was born in America, but and I also was really little, so I don't remember the first Gulf War. Uh, but I could see how that would just cause a lot of tension and just be a difficult thing, especially at the time when you guys were like ramping up to prepare to receive war casualties and yeah. the added stressor. The saving grace, I should say, is that it was so short. And it was over with before really having any casualties at all. Most of the, well, we had, we got a few, but they were, they weren't combat casualties. You know, they were accidents or, or whatever, or illnesses, but it was a blessing. It really was, um, not just for me, but for all of us, but, uh, inside I thought, oh, thank God, you know, in Arabic, we say Alhamdulillah, (laughs) which means thanks be to God. (laughs) Yeah, and I loved how when I was reading the book, you added those Arabic phrases throughout the book. And I just, 
I really loved how you tied your American culture with your Egyptian culture together in such a way. I deployed to Afghanistan, so I know a little bit of Dari, which is similar to Arabic, and I, I just found it fascinating, and I loved how you added that part into your book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, you know, I also added several words in Arabic that um, were um, like foods, for example, in the beginning, you know, and then words that my first husband used on me and or to me, whichever. And I also tied in the culture of his family. As, and it's really, I just really want to emphasize in that in my book, the message I want to bring out is that no matter what culture you're from, no matter what religion, no matter what country, no matter what race, whatever, you can't assume about somebody just because they're the same color as you or the same culture as you or the same religion as you or what have you. You just can't. And I realized that my mother's intentions were good. I mean, they weren't they weren't outrageous, but that's just, she wanted me to marry a Muslim because that's just the way it was. But he was far from the man that my father was, even though they were both Muslim, they were both Egyptian, nothing is completely different culture within a culture, so to speak. And that was the mistake that we made is we assumed, you know, that he'd be like us, but it was not. His family culture was the dynamics were everything from spousal abuse to child abuse with his father's other children and, and female circumcision and, oh, what have you. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was ghastly when I learned all that. Yeah. And when you filed for divorce, I remember you talking about how he was like outraged or mystified, I guess, that women had rights in America and he just didn't understand how like the law was in your favor. It was just really interesting how how different he viewed women in the way that, especially how your dad raised you, because the main reason you guys left Saudi Arabia was because you couldn't get your education after third grade, right? Right. Yeah. And that was in Saudi Arabia. We lived there for two years after leaving Egypt. And Saudi Arabia was not Saudi Arabia of today, of course. It was pre-oil. And girls did not get an education, period. The only girls that did up to third grade were the princesses, the family of the royal family. And my father was somehow connected with a friend of his at the ear of the prince. And he gave permission that I attend that school. But even that only went to third grade. Since then, of course, there are very educated women in Saudi Arabia. And of course, it's a land of wealth and it's, it's a different world. Yeah, when we were there, it was not like that. Sorry. Yeah, life life changes as time goes on. As we yeah. see now from last year, especially. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, this has been a crazy year. I guess the only other question I wanted to ask you before I get to my like final question that I ask everybody, but why did you decide to write your story in your in a memoir? Why did you decide to do that? Why did I decide to write my memoir and the story? Initially, I wanted to write it because I felt that my family's story is part of America's story. My story is part of America's story. I wanted to leave something behind for my children, for my daughters, so that they would 
you know, have something that would remind them of how they got here. And I was especially motivated after the 2016 election. Of course, we all know how that turned out. But uh, and I say this at the end of my book in the in the epilogue, how I wrote a letter to President Barack Obama about how people from where I come from and other immigrants and other minorities are being labeled in very disrespectful ways. And I thought, my God, you know, I I served in this army and I'm American and yada, yada, you know, and I thought. This this can't be. So I had to document our story. And um, I received a, a letter back from President Barack Obama, by the way, to, uh, because I shared my story with him. But initially, you know, I learned the principles of being a good American from the president, John F. Kennedy. That's how I learned English at the time when he was elected. And that was my... my um, lesson of how to be an American in all the years that I've grown up is how my family raised us. And now I wanted to leave a history and a legacy for people from my country and my my back of the woods, so to speak, or neck of the woods, because it's not documented very much, and especially not a military officer from that heritage. So initially it was for my children. And then people would tell me, wow, what an interesting story. You should write about it. And even President Obama encouraged me. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> I guess when the president gives you encouragement, it gives you a lot of push to go and get that book done. Yeah. And I think I found it really interesting. And I'm really glad that you wrote your story and you shared your experience because it touches on so many different aspects that I think I'll tell you, I'm sheltered and I don't see a lot of the stuff that goes on that hurts people in America. And so it was really interesting to read and it was really a good way for me to learn more about the different cultures in America and the different people and to hear their their voice and their story. So, And I always like to end my interview with what advice would you give to young women considering joining the military? So what would you say? Oh, gosh, I would say, first and foremost, do it when you're young and single. <laughs> Definitely before you have children. Man, I can't overemphasize that. Um, I did not have a choice at the time, but uh, that would be the best time to try it out. And if you feel that that's for you, then, you know, I'll be, you know, I'll be very honest. It's a very fulfilling career. But it's also important that you seek out a mentor because a lot of girls would want to join right out of high school. Going in right out of high school, of course, you become enlisted. And this is very young age. And so it's very important for you to seek a mentor, someone that can show you the ropes, answer some questions for you, questions you don't even know to ask, you know, <laughs> help you with potential issues that could come up. But most of all, follow your dream. If by any chance you go to college first and be, and then you go in and you get a direct commission, of course, that would be better because for me, I don't know if I could have survived as an enlisted person, to be honest. It would have been much rougher. And it was rough as a junior officer. So you have to be prepared to be flexible and sacrifice. 
if at all possible, you can go out of college after college. It would I would recommend that. But if not, and a lot of people get their college education through the military or as you know after afterwards. But uh, it's it's, a, it's an extremely satisfying career if you find that you're flexible enough for it and um, you're able to to roll with the punches, so to speak. It's no picnic, though. <laughs> it's definitely no picnic. And I had a couple of children, and being a single parent, it was at times harrowing. The experiences, a lot of positive experiences, but a lot not so positive. And a lot of challenges, which also helped me grow. I can guarantee it'll help anyone grow that comes in. <laughs> yeah. And I have a, a guide on my website, A Girl's Guide to the Military. If you're thinking about joining the military and you, and like she said, if you have questions or maybe you don't know what questions to ask, you can check that out and it'll give you a head start in joining the military. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for your writing your book. I'll have links to it in the show notes so that people can order it if they want to get it. I thought it was a great book. I really enjoyed it. I got it last Saturday and I already finished it on wow. Sunday. So <laughs> I finished it in less than a week. I just, and it was really short chapters so I could just pick it up here and there. And I really enjoyed reading it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.